Well, good morning to everybody. We're in the Gospel of John. John chapter 5, we've been in this particular chapter for, for quite a while. I'm actually uncharacteristic of how I teach. I'm going to actually cover quite a, what I consider to be a significant portion um, this morning. I think it's pretty much tied together. And so <clears throat> I did uh, want to look at all this. I want to begin in verse 30. I'm going to read to you verse 30. Uh, John chapter 5, uh, I'm going to read to you in, from verse 30 all the way to uh, verse 47. So we're actually going to go through the chapter. And so, um, but to be able to adequately teach this, I'll probably need about three hours. So hopefully, no, I'm kidding. We're going to get out done on time. And I'm just going to hit some highlights. We may, we may or may not double back on some of this. I'm not sure yet. But remember the, the context of this particular chapter is the question and the challenge that was brought before Jesus because <clears throat> not only did he heal a man, but he did so on the Sabbath. And he really answers that question by stating that this was his divine prerogative. And even more than the idea of a divine prerogative, he really even brings in the idea that... that <clears throat> God the Father is working, and he is working uh, up until now, and, and really is, which is also a claim to deity, that even during the time of the Sabbath, God still works, because if God actually ever took, and I don't know how he does it, I don't know. I don't know how God does half the, well, any of the stuff that he does when you stop and think about it. it he, he really is so wonderful that he keeps all these plates spinning. You ever thought about that? And he keeps, he keeps all of your plates spinning, and then everybody else's as well. And, 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 and the fact that he, that he has the entire universe in his hand. And so even in the book of Genesis, when he rested, yes, he rested. But he still had the universe in his hand. He didn't just let it go and it just kind of dissipate. And really that rest that he took on the seventh day was really given to us as an example for us. As I've said to you a few times in the past as we're going through this chapter, you have a God-given mandate and we'll even say a God-given excuse to take a day off once a week and to take a day off completely and, and if need be, unplug the phone. Kill your television. I love that. I love that bumper sticker. I'm going to get, uh, they used to come out, kill your television. Anyway, I, you know, uh, well, I'm not saying you don't have to, you know, I'm, you know, I'm kind of, I don't like the television, but, you know, your mileage is going to vary on that one. If you watch it, you watch it, okay? Uh, just use some discretion, I guess. Um, because I also believe in the idea of garbage in, garbage out, but that's another, uh, I don't know why I'm going here. Um, trying to dig myself out, I guess. That's what I'm trying to do. But nonetheless, um, but to take a day off, take a day of rest. It was also really God's first whisper, if you will, of the up-and-coming incarnation where God became flesh and dwelt among us. Because Jesus observed the Sabbath. And he being God has the prerogative to 
do good on the Sabbath. And he, he expressed that. He heals this man. And his answer of why he did so was because he is God. And so we're going to pick this up. We've been looking at this for a few weeks now. We're going to pick this up around verse 30. And he says in verse 30, I'm going to read to you of the New American Standard 2020. And he says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. We kind of touched on that a little bit last week, but I'm going to, let me just keep going. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies about me. And I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You have sent messengers to John, and he has testified to the truth. That is John the Baptist. But the testimony I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which my Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has testified about me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. Also, you do not have his word remaining in you because you do not believe in him whom he sent. You examine the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is those very scriptures that testify about me. And yet you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name. You do not receive me. If another comes... In his own name, you will receive him. And how can you believe when you accept the glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from one another, uh, from the one and only God? Excuse me. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have put your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Father, we pray and we ask for your Holy Spirit this morning to come and to fill us, to give us ears to hear that which you desire to share with each of us this morning. So we ask, Lord, that you would Make your passage, your word, your scriptures alive in our hearts and in our minds. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. As I'm reading through this, I'm thinking, yep, we'll spend another week in this chapter. Um, there's just way too much here to cover this morning. So Jesus goes on and he, he he's talking about 
the fact that judgment has been allocated to him, been given to him, been given over to him by the Father. And yet he goes on to say, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous. I'm reading verse 30 to you again. Because I do not seek my own will, but I will... I. Uh, my own will, but the will of him who sent me, which he's referring to whom? The Father. So he, he's saying essentially what he has already said in this chapter. He's repeating himself. He's, he's really saying again what he said in, in chapter 19 and 20, where it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, and let us something he sees the Father doing, for whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in the same way. He's repeating, essentially, that, that truth that he is attempting to teach. And, and as I brought up when we went through that passage, I will bring it up again, is, is that some want to take this as a means to try to uh, construct this idea that there is this hierarchy within the Trinity. Now, just because the Son is subjected to the Father, and does it say that he is? Yes, it does. It does not mean that he is inferior to the Father. It does not mean that he is less than the Father. Bad example, but I'll give it to you anyway. How's that? Have you ever worked for someone that you knew that you were smarter Better looking, right? We'll even go there, huh? Uh, able to do, perform the job better than the person that you worked for? Of course we have. At least we felt that way in our own mind, did we not, right? That's not really, again, the best example, but just because Jesus has subjected himself in submission to the Father does, that mean, does not mean that he is an inferior God which that is what some of the cults try to uncover. And then when you really, when you really press them, they, they will really tell you that Jesus is a created being. There's all kinds of problems with that, is there not? Remember, John 5 is always read in context of what? I told you this, I've been telling almost every week. I'll tell you next week too. Some of you know, but you didn't want to say. It's read in context of in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.1. 1, 1. So we don't set John 1.1 1, 1 aside. It, it is the foundation of this entire gospel. And everything we read in John is read from that context. You know how that's, and in some books, you go to the back of the book and that tells you everything you need to know. Well, that really is true about the end of John as well. But in reality, John leaves off by telling you everything you need to know in those first 18 verses of John chapter 1. And so we read this within that context. He's reiterating again what he has already said in cha uh, chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. And he's talking about this idea of him wanting to please the Father. And what in an... I guess one of the other things that I really just don't understand, and I, I, I think 
passages like this give us little glimmers of the relationship between the Trinity. And, and how much the Trinity loves each other. How much the Father loves the Son. How much the Son loves the Father. How much the Son loves the Spirit. How much the Father loves the Spirit. How much the Spirit loves the Father and the Son. I got them all, right? Okay. Um, there's a community going on there that sometimes we're not even aware of. And, 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 this, this, and that's part of what he's saying here, that, that uh, my judge... My judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will. There's this incredible cooperation. There's this incredible accountability. Now, he's God, so he's perfect and always will be, right? 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 Okay. He's God and he always will be, but yet, nonetheless, there is this cooperation and accountability within the triunity of God. That... As I've told you before, in heaven there will be seminary. Okay, you know I'm taking a license here. Okay, but in heaven there will be seminary, and I want to enroll on. I want to. I want to mate. I want. I don't know if I want to mate anyway. I want to enroll on classes on the Trinity. And 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 I I just have a feeling though that that looking into these things, these are things that angels almost dare to look into, and yet they may just be too wonderful for us to pre- really to understand. But to truly, to, to try to grab a hold of the wonder of who God is. He is so far beyond who we are. And yet the scripture tells us what in the Psalms, he has made us what? Come on, you know this. A little, you were going there, a little lower than the angels. A little lower. And one day we will rule over them. Those poor angels. They had to deal with us in life. Now they're going to have to, you know. Anyway, I I think they'll be satisfied. But his judgment is righteous because he does not seek his own will. But the will of him who sent him. That is the Father. Very, 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 very different than the human judges. I could go off on that. I'm just going to leave it and just let you play with that in your own head later on. How's that? He is so trustworthy. Did you ever think of that? Jesus is so trustworthy that the judgment can be given to him, and he will judge righteously because he doesn't have an agenda other than to please the Father. Mutual accountability, mutual connectedness in a three-way system that just far exceeds my ability to really understand this. And so what he does here He will bring now three witnesses. And what he's doing, he's following Torah, by the way, where through the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything will be established. It's given to us in the book of Numbers. 
and, and elsewhere. Uh, but he says, if I testify, if I alone testify, verse 31, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. I find that to be fascinating that he said that, don't you? And in fact, I'm almost fascinated to the point of being confused of why would he say that because of, of, of him already in this passage even asserting his deity. Well, why wouldn't it be true? But look what he says to that. There is another who testifies about me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. And you have sent messengers to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. In other words, he's coming down to our level. Aren't you glad that God comes down to our level? I mean, I have a hard enough time with it, I think, at times. With it, he comes down to my level, and yet, yet he, it, it, far more wonderful than I can explain, understand. Some of you understand what I'm about to say. And no, I'm not a heretic. Well, at least I don't think I am. Anyway, but an understanding that I at times have a difficult time articulating with words. But there's a substance there. In him, we live and we move and we have our being. But he comes down to our level in such a way so that we might be saved, so that we might understand. I was talking with a, a, a friend of mine who's struggling. He, he, he struggles a lot with the faith. How's that? Um, and remember what I shared with what Augustine talked about, where Augustine said, I believe in order that I might understand. I believe, in order that I might understand. Augustine, who was one of the more brilliant minds of the ancient church world, said that. I believe, in order that I might understand. Often it is, in, in, as modern people, we want to understand so that we might believe. Is there a place for that? Yeah, there is. But the truths of God very quickly, at least in, maybe I'm just not real smart, okay? But the truths of God very quickly far ex exceed my understanding until I really start to press into them and press into them deeply and, and with intention. And then all of a sudden I think I got it, and then it's like, well, if I can't explain it to somebody else, how do I really understand these things? But he comes down to our level. We know enough through the revelation of the Holy Spirit, through the word of God, whereby we might be saved. He puts it out there for all of us. We'll probably pick up verse 39 and the end of the chapter next week. But here you have people who did not believe. 
But what he does here is he gives us three witnesses. Again, he's following Torah. It was the book of Numbers I referred to it. I finally found it in my notes. Numbers chapter 35 uh, and also in Deuteronomy 17. It requires to give two or three trustworthy witnesses. So, remember what is going on here. He's defending why he healed on the Sabbath, which was a violation of what? Torah. So he's going to use Torah to explain to them why he can do what he is doing and who he is. So the first witness he talks about, it, for, it, first let me back up just a touch. Verse 32 is, uh, to me is, is a difficult one to understand because as there is another who testifies about me. Commentators are split on who that another is. Some believe it's referring to God the Father because the word another can mean another of the same kind. Now this word translated from the Greek can mean another of the same kind. The problem with that is here in this same passage, a little bit later, um, he talks about another comes in his own name, verse 43, and it's this very same Greek word. So if you're <coughs> interested in this, I'll let you pursue that one. I pursued it as much as I'm going to, at least for now, um, on this one. So I don't know who this another is. I, I, I lean toward the idea of John the Baptist because the next verse that segues right into uh, John the Baptist because he says, you have sent messengers to John the Baptist. Again, let's go back to what we read in the first chapter of the gospel. John the Baptist is, is really, uh, his role is first defined in chapter 1, that he is the witness in John chapter 1. Uh, and he gives significant testimony of who Jesus is in John chapter 129. He says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, that is also a Torah reference, by the way. That's an Old Testament reference. That's a reference to, really, to the Passover Lamb. We, we, that was a long time ago we were in chapter 1, wasn't it? Okay. Anyway, um, but we covered that then. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, probably a reference to the Passover Lamb, which we would see in the book of Exodus, also in the book of Deuteronomy. And, and so John was the one who gave the first witness of who Jesus is. He's the forerunner that Malachi prophesied about. And, and he will come uh, and proclaim the coming of the Messiah. And, and so, that's his first witness here. And he refers to John the Baptist. And, and, and even um, at the end of Jesus' ministry, right around Matthew chapter 21, he refers back to John the Baptist as the one who testified of who Jesus is. Fulfilling, again, the prophecy that Malachi spoke about when you would have the forerunner who would come and proclaim the day, the, 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 uh, proclaim the coming of the Lord. And um, John tells people, told people that Jesus was in fact the Lord. John chapter 1, verse 23. And, and not the Lamb of God, but also 
John chapter 1, verse 34, referring to him as the Son of God. Now, as you know, uh, when, I, when, when I see the word Lord in the New Testament, translated from the Greek word kurios in the Greek, my take on that, it, it is a direct reference to Lord from the Old Testament out of the Septuagint. Because in the, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word Lord, or in the Greek, kurios, was the word that the Greeks used when they translated the proper name of God. That's why you, in your Old Testament, where you have the capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D, that is giving us the proper name of God in the Hebrew text. The Greeks, when they saw the proper name of God in the, in the Hebrew text and translated it into Greek, because Hebrews have such a high respect for the name of God, they translated his proper name, which I believe is Yahweh, unless I have Jehovah Witnesses at the door, and then I use the name Jehovah, and I'm fine with that too. But they translated the proper name of God into the Greek word kurios, which in our New Testament is translated Lord. And so Romans chapter 10, when it says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, I think that's saying if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Yahweh. That's how I interpret it. That's, that's what I think is what he's saying. So John was the first to speak. And it says that he was the lamp and he was, he was burning and shining, verse 35, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now, that fascinates me. You were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. I'm, I'm thinking of the parable of, of the four soils. Uh, of, uh, of the, the seeds that were put on the, on the pathway and they didn't even sprout. They were basically just ate up by the birds uh, because the ground was so hard, the seeds were not able to penetrate <coughs> and take root. And, and how often it is that, that certain people that you have known, people that I have known, that, that they, they have an experience with God in some way, some shape or form, and then they just kind of fizzle out. They just kind of fizzle out. Do you understand that we as Christians do that as well? We just do it on a more, more of a minor scale. Because I believe that those experiences that we have with God are, are, are God's way of attempting to give us a new direction to give us a new way of living. That those experiences with God are not just for the sake of the experience itself. But the experience with God, and, and I'm, I'm being very vague here on purpose, but the experience with God is a means by which you have a benchmark in your life that you say from this point forward, I'm now going to walk closer with the Lord. 
but often it is. We, 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 we relish in that light. We relish in that burning and shining of the lamp for a while. Um, and then we kind of phase out. Notice it says that John was the burning and the, the lamp that was burning and shining. But what, who is the light? Go back to John 1. Who is the light? John 1 tells us, it, 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 it says, um, I'm in loop, so I'm having a problem. But so give me just a moment. I turned back way too far. Verse 6 of chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. It's referring to John the Baptist. And this man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that through him, that all through him might believe. He was not the light, that is, John was not the light but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. The light is none other in this passage, John chapter 1. Who is the light? The light is the Word. Who is the Word? The Word was with God in the beginning. The Word was God in the beginning. Who was the Word? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father. The Word is Jesus. The light is Jesus. Going back again into John chapter 5, John was the lamp that was burning and shining, but the light that came out of the lamp was not John, but it was none other than Jesus Christ, who was his message and purpose for being the forerunner. So that's testimony number one. Testimony number two in verse 36, it says, but the testimony I have is greater than the testimony of John. Now, just for fun, because I like to bring these things up, look at verse 31 again. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. And then he goes on to say, hey, um, Tim, Then he goes on to say that he has a greater testimony than John's testimony. The testimony of his works. For the works which the Father has given to me to accomplish. What did, what did Nicodemus say to Jesus in John chapter 3? We know that you were sent from God because no one can do these works unless God is with him, right? All these miracles that Jesus did, and, and they, they weren't just happenstance. The miracles that Jesus did, the healings, the raising of those from the dead, they were in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So those miracles... And I don't have a problem calling them signs and wonders, by the way. They were done to authenticate his ministry. And so Jesus says that these testimonies uh, that, that, uh, uh, that he did, his works of which the Father has given me to accomplish, 
Now, it didn't say that the Father did them. It said the works that the Father has given him to accomplish, the task, the mission, the ministry that the Father had given for Jesus to accomplish, the very works that he does testifies about me and that the Father has sent me. Again, it's a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. I even thought about giving you a long list, but I want to cover a little more ground here. We've talked about this uh, as well in the past, and we will talk about this again. Um, so his second testimony is himself and his works. Now, I don't know about you, because I've, I've, I've never... And there are those who claim to have done this, but I don't want to get into this this morning. But, but I, I've never seen a, a, a human raise another human from the dead. Matter of fact, within the realm of signs and wonders, which I wonder about, okay, play on words, those aren't things that are done by human power. And there's all kinds of argument and, I'm, I, and all kinds of different views on this. And I would go back to what Paul said when he wrote to the Corinthians and he says, you test the spirits. And you test them and make sure that what they are doing is that uh, being inspired and led and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because any kind of miracle that happens... And I, I think I've seen God heal. I think I've seen God heal. I'm still praying that God heals other people. But I think I've seen God heal. If anything else, he, 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 he uses his natural laws and cooperates with the medication, and, and that works. But I think, I think I've seen God do some healing supernaturally. But I wouldn't want that person by whom was the agent of the power of God to heal another person to pack up a semi and take it on the road. I, I don't think that that's what the purpose of the work uh, and the, of the grace and the gifts are for. But they're, they're, they're given to us to edify the body. But he, his works that he does testify about him, but they also connect his relationship with the Father. That's important. Thirdly, and the Father who sent me has testified about me. And I, I, this fascinated me, what Jesus said here. He says, you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. So he's splitting this in half, by the way. Then he goes on to say, also, which means, okay, part B, also, that's what also could mean. Also, you do not have his word remaining in you because you do not believe him whom he sent. First, you do not hear the voice of God at any time, nor have you seen his form. Now, didn't John tell us in the, <laughs> the very chapter, no man has seen God at any time? He did. 
So is Jesus speaking physical seeing? Is Jesus speaking about physical hearing? I don't think so. Have you ever seen God? Have you ever heard God? I hope you have. Maybe not in a physical form. I hope you heard his voice this morning. What I really got out of this was a cooperation, and Jesus doesn't say it here, but I think it's strongly implied, the cooperation of the Trinity yet again, but this time we brought in the third member of the Trinity with the Holy Spirit. Because I believe I have seen plenty of times the result of what the Holy Spirit has done. I believe that I hear, and I try to listen, and I hopefully hear daily the voice of the Spirit in one way, one shape, or one form. And if you want to hear the voice of the Spirit and you don't hear the voice of the Spirit, how would you start? I would suggest you start by reading the Bible every day. Because the, the Holy Spirit does speak to us through his word and always speaks to us in consistency with his word. If you read the Bible and it says one thing and you think the Holy Spirit told you something different, guess what? You didn't hear the Holy Spirit. You didn't. You heard something else. You heard another spirit. That's why, again, Paul tells us in his letters, test the spirits and see whether they be of God or not. These were people who did not hear the Holy Spirit. They have neither heard his voice nor seen his form. And then on top of that, he says, you do not have his word remaining in you because you do not believe him whom he sent. Notice it says you do not have his word remaining. It didn't say his word never came in. Remaining, abiding, staying put, having an effect. You know, one of the, I, I, I like to read quite a bit, but one of the things about reading late at night, what I'm finding is, I hate telling you guys this, but it's a good illustration. I have to really slow down at night or it goes in one part of my brain and out the other. Okay. It's not just me. Okay. A couple of you. Okay. That. And, and, and I remember last night I was reading something before, right? I could tell I'm about ready to fall asleep and I'm reading something and I, I put it up and I'm like, okay, what did I just read? And I started kind of trying to piece that together. What did I just read? Uh, you know, and, and, and uh, to try to retain that, to try to get the word to remain within who I am as a person, to remain within my soul, to be as what Paul talked about to Timothy, the engrafted word that is able to save your souls. These people knew the law. They knew the teaching. They knew Torah. But they misused it. 
And when you misuse it, it's not remaining in you. It becomes something else. I've told you this story many times. The young kid that I used to work for that went away to Bible college, and he got his money's worth, I think, and then some. And he knew the Bible, but there was no change of heart. And I remember telling him one day, you're, you, you, you constantly misuse the word of God. And Holy could tell me, no, I don't. Okay, I guess you don't. All right, obviously you're not going to listen to what I have to say. Um, but what do you do with that which you have read? That which you have heard? I mean, John talks about this in this first letter, that which we have seen, that which we have handled concerning the word of life. He's talking about Jesus, of course. And he's talking about not only did he, did he read about him, but he was with him. He heard him. He hung out with him. He touched him. What do you do with that? How much of it do you attempt to retain and as we as we here's the thing as we attempt to retain the word of god in our hearts does it does that change us i don't think so as we attempt let me explain as we attempt to retain the word of god in our hearts Thy word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee, right? All right. As we attempt to retain the word of God in our heart, I think what we are called to do is to hold it out with our hands and allow the spirit to then do the work in it. That's how we hear his voice. That's how we see his form. Third witness. And the Holy Spirit Always speaks of whom? You guys know this. Jesus. The Holy Spirit always speaks of Jesus. So, interesting about this word too, you don't have the word remaining or abiding. It could also mean dwelling in. Has the word of God moved into your heart? How much of it? So, What happens here is that the third witness also becomes an indictment against his accusers. Follow me on that one? They were trying to indict him. This is like a court scene. I didn't bring that up, but this is like a court scene. And the third witness all of a sudden becomes an indictment against the accusers. Now, let me ask you this, and we're going to be done. Should Jesus' defense here, should that not frame and inform our own defense of the faith? Good, I got some of you thinking. How did Jesus defend himself? He brought forth three witnesses. He talked about the forerunner. He talked about his miracles, his works. 
And he talked about the testimony through the power of the Holy Spirit of the Father. Should not those things inform how we live and move and have our being? Because when I say, should that not inform how we defend our faith? Yes, there are times, I think, that the Lord will give us opportunities to, in fact, actively do that. But do you defend your faith in the way that you live? I had to ask this of myself. Do I always defend my faith in the way that I live? And I'm not talking about apologetics. You know what apologetics is, right? Apologetics is when you do something wrong, you apologize. No, it isn't. Uh, apologetics is the defense of the faith, all right? And I think there's a place for it, but I think sometimes it, 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 it goes off in its own weird direction, and they try to, some of these people just try to tell you how to think. Um, but there is a place for the defense of the faith, but do we live in such a way that we defend our own faith? Follow what I'm saying, what I'm asking? Is our life, and is, is our life, because our life preaches a whole lot louder than our words. You guys know that, right? Okay. I have to remind myself of that from time to time. But are we living in such a way that we recognize the forerunner? Because in each non-Christian that we encounter, they have probably encountered somebody who brought them the gospel before. So they've had a forerunner before they met us. See, I'm I'm really spiritualizing this, but hopefully you're tracking with me. And the signs and the wonders, what's the greatest sign and wonder? I think the signs and the wonders, the greatest sign and wonder is is the, the fruit of a converted heart. The fruit of a converted heart. Have we been converted, have we been converted and therefore producing fruit in such a way that people will see it as a sign. People will see the change. People will wonder about what they have seen. And then the voice of the Father, because I'm convinced, as convinced, as convinced as it is, that you and I never win anybody to Christ. That's an understatement, I also believe. But we are nothing more than tools in the hands of the Father, who through the work of the Holy Spirit speaks into the hearts of people and brings them into the knowledge of the truth. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's where I have it, some issues with certain, certain groups that you have to have all your, your ducks in a row. You know, what you, you know what we need to be saved? We need the work of the Holy Spirit to bring our understanding of these things. Paul is very clear about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 2. That to the natural person, these things are, 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 uh, are unable to be understood because we need the, the agency of the Holy Spirit to give us understanding. I would submit to you, too, that as we grow in Christ, we still need the agency of the Holy Spirit to give us understanding. It never changes. In a sense, we are constantly being converted. That's what sanctification is. I think we are saved. Once we are saved, we're saved. All right, that's my belief. Once we're saved, we're there, okay? But then there's this constant converting, if you will, sanctifying, growing in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
First Peter chapter 3, verse 15. I'll read it and then we'll be done. Peter says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That is sanctify, set him apart. When you sanctify something, when you set it apart, you do what? You make it special. You set it off to the side because it's special, because it's important. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear. Now, that with meekness and in fear, I've met a lot of people, they kind of scratch that out. They kind of black that out of their Bible. They don't, they don't, they don't do that. They, they want to take the Bible out. And I've got, of course, I've, this one's pretty big. This is kind of a Bible thumper Bible, right? I've got a bigger one than this. It's my, I call it my Bible thumper Bible. But anyway, um, it's not a hammer. Hebrews is real clear. Sword of the Spirit. Divide between joint and marrow, soul and spirit. It does that incision, that surgery. Allow your life to be the defense of the gospel. And then allow the spirit to use his sword to penetrate the hearts of the people around you that you know and you love and you care about and you want to see them come into the kingdom.